Your majesty is indescribable beyond our human words. And you are a glorious God and you are a king, a king of all the universe, a king of your people. And I pray today that you exercise your lordship over us and cause us to heed your word, to obey, be people who are doers of the word. And I thank you that you have given us a written word so that we may know you, so that we may know salvation, so that we may know your son, so that we may be the people like we'll find here at the end of Malachi who are set aside in your book of remembrance. Be with our congregation today as we hear this word read and preached. Pray that you penetrate my heart and penetrate our hearts to be children who follow after you, to be children of Israel and not of children of Jacob, whose hearts have been turned to our fathers. So be with us this morning as we look at the end of Malachi, and I pray that you use it for edification and use it as something that will grow us and transform us as we go out through the week and the months and the years. So we thank you for today. Be with us, be with me as I speak. I pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Well, I hope you all had a good Thanksgiving and Merry Christmas. I think I can say that now, right? Is that appropriate? Well, if you would, turn with me for the last time to Malachi. We're looking at this last section here, starting in uh, chapter 3, verse 16 to the end. So you have Malachi, last book of the Bible, just before the Gospel of Matthew. Looking at this last section here. Beginning in verse 16, chapter 3, Malachi says this. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like cows from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So the book of Malachi 
interestingly, in, similar, in a similar fashion to the book of Revelation. It's interesting that the last written revelation that we have of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, is very similar to the last written revelation of the New Testament, where Revelation ends with a look at two groups of people. God divides the people into two groups, those who will fear his wrath and those who will fear the Lord and be saved from his wrath. And so Malachi is going to end in a similar way where he's going to divide up the people of God, as it were, into two groups. Those who really aren't the people of God and those who truly are the people of God. And they, just like we saw in Revelation several months back, they will have the similar fate. So what I want to do is look at these two people of God. Now, in verse 16 and on, we have this introduction of this book of remembrance where he begins to talk about the people of God who fear God. So where do, you, where do the people of God who um, are sent to destruction come from? Well, that's basically what the whole rest of Malachi has been from chapter 1 um, till now. These people have been given the moniker of children of Jacob. Now, why is this? Jacob is the name that Israel eventually became, right? Jacob means trickster. It is the one who is deceptive, the one who wasn't quite following God until one day God changed his heart and began to call him Israel, and that's what the people of God were named after. And so we have the children of God. I mean, the children of Jacob, like we see, saw last week in verse 6 of chapter 3, for the, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Right? And so we see this progression of the children of Jacob. We saw in chapter 1 of Malachi 2 and 3 that uh, it is not Esau that God loves, but it is Jacob, his brother. And so this is the differentiation that God gives between Jacob and Israel, or the people of God. There's a God is going to choose his people. He's going to delineate a line. And so either you're going to be like Jacob and a deceiver who is going to be left out, or you're going to be like Israel, who Jacob becomes, and which he loved. And so we, Malachi presents this people of Jacob who have distrusted the love of God in chapter 1, verse 2, and have despised the name of God in chapters one through, chapter 1, verse 6. They have corrupted the covenant of Levi, chapter 2, verse 8. And in chapter 2, verse 10, they profane the covenant of their fathers. And they do this by profaning the covenant of marriage in verse 11. In chapter 2, verse 17, they wearied God. In verse 3, I mean, chapter 3, verse 8, they've robbed God. So these are the children of Jacob, in which we'll see what happens to them here in a moment. But first, let's turn to the children of Israel. Now, if we were to go to Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, it says this. Paul, I think, having a precedent also here in Malachi, says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who were descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. So here's where I, I see a differentiation between the children of Jacob and the children of Israel. 
The children of Jacob are the ones who neglect the covenant, don't care for it. The children of Israel are the ones who follow their fathers in faith. And so when we get to verse 16 of chapter 3, God then turns his attention to the children of Israel. And he makes note of those who feared the Lord. Verse 16, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. And what is this book of remembrance? We see similar books like this throughout the Bible. And particularly, it might remind you of uh, another passage in Revelation where we have the book of Lamb's, uh, the Lamb's Book of Life, where written in it is those who God will save. So here there's a similar kind of book being written. In Malachi, God is presented as a king. Now this is prevalent throughout the whole Bible, particularly in Malachi, we have this idea of God being a king who has sent his messenger to the people. And so you might remember from the very first week in Malachi, we talked how Malachi literally means my messenger. So we have my messenger bringing us this written revelation, and it presents God as a great king by drawing upon this kind of administration imagery, this kingly imagery throughout the book in a number of ways. Right? Chapter 1, verse 14, literally calls God a great king. In chapter 1, God introduces his messenger, the bearer of the book of this message. Chapter 2 portrays the priests as messengers who have strayed from the path, in verse 8, leading to the recipients of God's message. Chapter 3, my messenger reappears along with the messenger of the covenant. And in chapter 4, predicts, predicts Elijah, as we saw earlier, return as a messenger. So in Malachi 3.16, the sovereign king orders that an administrative document of, is to be recorded. And one of the ways that you can translate this word that we translate as book of remembrance is the idea of a memorandum or a record. Right, this is the same concept, same word that we find, for instance, in the book of Ezra. In chapter 6.2 of Ezra, we see a memorandum this book of remembrance written. And it's not a public document, like anyone could just go up and see it, but it was a special document kept in a special storehouse, put away um, for private use for the administration of the kingdom that the king could then send and check on um, to remind himself what previous laws and decrees and things were written down for him to follow. So it preserved the details of administrative decision and help the memory of the rulers and the succeeding rulers uh, of what laws and what decrees were given throughout the kingdoms. So several passages of scriptures illustrate this. Okay? For instance, I brought up Ezra. In Ezra 4.15, Artaxerxes ordered a search of the archives for evidence of Judah's rebellion prior to the exile. And when this was found, the word a memorandum or a book of remembrance was found, 
provided the grounds to stop the temple destruction, construction in Jerusalem and to prevent any further progress. But then interesting what happens is later on in Ezra, chapter 6, Darius issues an order to search the house of scrolls, the special place where these records were kept, for evidence um, of an earlier decision to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And so when this memorandum was found in Ezra chapter 6, verse 2, it showed Cyrus's decree to rebuild the temple. And so the outcome of this memorandum allowed the progression of the temple to go forward. And so Malachi chapter 3, verse 16, we have a similar thing where God sets a memorandum down. He has a scroll written, a book written, to be on file in his royal archives for that great and terrible day when he visits his enemies. And on that day when he pulls from the royal archives and visits his enemies and brings destruction on them, he can look at that list and see those who feared the Lord and differentiate between the two and separate the chaff. And so this brings us to a look at God's wrath. So we have delineated two groups of people that we're going to find in this passage. The people who do not fear the Lord, that are the sons of Jacob, and the people who do fear the Lord, who are the sons of Israel. So we have this memorandum brought. And this memorandum is going to distinguish, verse 18, between the righteous and the liquid, the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Now what's going to happen to those who do not serve them? Well, we're going to see the intensity of God's anger. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. So God comes with an intense burning anger. This isn't an oven like in our house that we use to cook our turkeys that gets a little bit hot. This is an oven that is burning on fire that could be used to heat the whole house on a cold winter's night. This is a picture of God's seething, burning, hot anger that will scald you when you get close to it and surely kill you when you come before it. And this, this burning anger is going to reduce the evildoers to nothing. But also notice the justice of God's wrath. Where I see the justice here is that God isn't just having wrath because he's angry, like a, a father who got angry because his son spilled milk or something, but it is a slow-burning wrath that justly comes upon us. Notice that the righteous join in on God's wrathful action. Verse 3 of chapter 4 says, And you shall tread down the wicked, who? Those who have feared the Lord shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord. So notice that we, who have been written in this memorandum, this book of remembrance, will join in God's actions. Why? Because I think we will recognize the justice of God in his actions will recognize the truth in it and will be desiring and willing 
for the wickedness to end, for God's kingdom to come into fruition. And so no longer would we, will we necessarily weep for those who are perishing, but we will join in in God's justice and be behind it. But it's not just God's wrath that we see in this text. We see an overwhelming amount of the grace of God. Notice that God, because of this memorandum, makes those who are written in it his treasured possession. Verse 17 of chapter 3 says, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves them. So those who are spared, those who will not be trampled in the stubble, will be very much the opposite. God's treasured possession be something that he desires, that he wants for his own, that he will never let go. Verse 2 of chapter 4 tells us that, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stalls. So this is a picture of the calves leaping from stalls. You can imagine that the whole winter, these calves would be locked in these little bins to be kept safe. And when the spring arrives, let out, and the joy that they have fleeing from the stall, being able to leap around and dance and, and finally run free. This is the joy that we will feel when God comes. We will be his treasured possession. And the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. The sun can be both a positive and a negative thing, right? If without the sun, our crops wouldn't grow, we wouldn't have the warmth of the sun, but it can also give us cancer and be harmful to things. And so I think the sun of righteousness is similar in this fashion. For us who are written in the memorandum, the sun of righteousness will bring healing on its wings, which is a reference to his, his garments, his coat. For those who have done the things in Malachi chapter 1 through now, who do not fear the Lord, this will be a harmful thing. So his arrival will be associated with healing and restoring of his people. The son of righteousness, God himself, will possess healing in his wings. It was assumed in ancient Israel, the hem of the garment of righteous men contained healing properties. Yet the healing that Malachi refers to in this passage is not merely physical healing, but a spiritual restoration from sin and from separation from the Lord. So the son will come with jubilation and celebration. And when he comes, you will find out and you will go out and playfully jump like the calves from the stall. The Israelites would take the calves and... Uh, excuse me. And so we have uh, this healing that will come, this jubilation that we will, uh, in, that we will ha have a part of as, as uh, God comes, this day of the Lord. And so we turn this day of the Lord. What is this day of the Lord that we see in verse 16 and 17? Right, we see verse 16, in the day when God will make up his treasured possession, this day is a day that he will spare lives and distinguish out the righteousness. In verse 1 of chapter 4, we see that the day is coming, in verse 3 of chapter 4, we see that on that day when God acts. In verse 5, 
we see that, it's called, that it is called a great and awesome day of the Lord. Well, this is not a new concept that Malachi brings out, but an old. In the Old Testament, we have this idea of this day of the Lord, which is called several things, just like in Malachi. It was the day of visitation or the day of wrath or the great day of the Lord. And scripture is replete with this idea of this day of the Lord, this great day of the Lord, which had the connotation of God's judgment, God's coming wrath. And it was often in the Old Testament this idea of this dark and foreboding thing where God will come and judge and bring wrath upon people who are disobedient to his covenant and to those who are enemies of Israel. On the other hand, in the New Testament, the idea gives us kind of elements of hope and joy. It becomes then the day of Christ, the day of the Lord. This is the day of the Son of Man. And so here, it comes with this picture of this idea that on the day of the Lord, righteousness will come, and not just judgment, but grace and mercy to those who follow him. But I want to point out something here about the day of the Lord. We have the day of the Lord in which we have this day in which wrath and vengeance from the Lord will come upon, his, upon people who do not fear him and this graciousness that God will give to his people by saving them. In the Old Testament, it seems that this is a single, single event, a single day that is going to come and hit the people at the same time where God will come in wrath and justice and then save his people from them. This was the expectation and part of the reason why uh, Jesus was rejected as Messiah because he did not bring the wrath to the people. Instead, he only brought what he claims salvation. But I want to notice what Jesus does when he comes to this concept of the day of the Lord. If you've got, got your Bibles, I want you to see this clearly. Go to Isaiah chapter 61. This might be familiar to you as this is going to be a verse that Jesus will quote during his ministry. And you'll notice something that Jesus is going to do with this day of the Lord, this coming wrath and this coming salvation to his people. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 and 2, Isaiah is speaking of this day of the Lord. And he's speaking of it speaking of the positive side, and he says this in chapter one or chapter 61, verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord, Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. So notice that last part of verse 2. And the day of vengeance of our God. Now let's go to Luke chapter 4. This is where Jesus goes to the synagogue and uh, they ask him to teach. And, he un and, he, and they give him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. 
and he teaches from there. So in chapter 4, verse 17, we see this. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now he's quoting Isaiah 61, we just read. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stops there. Verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all of the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Do you see what Jesus did here? He opens up this scroll from Isaiah, <laughs> which verse 2 ends speaking about the vengeance of God. But he cuts it short. He stops in the middle of that verse. And when he stops in the middle of that verse, he stops reading, closes the scroll, and he says, this scripture has been filled today. What is Jesus saying here? We get a hint in that, in verse 22, all that heard this marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Remember, the day of the Lord was a twofold thing. You have a day that's coming in which vengeance and wrath of God were coming, and a day when healing and righteousness given to his people. And you might find it strange that if I were then to understand this as a Jew, that the day of the Lord was this single event in which wrath was coming and salvation to his people was coming, but then this guy shows up and says, I am the Messiah and I bring healing. You might go, okay, but where is the wrath? Where is the destruction of our enemies? We're still under Roman rule. We have pagans surrounding us in control of us. So notice what Jesus says. He stops and cuts the day of the Lord in half. So Jesus' initial coming was to proclaim liberty to the captives, to open the prisons to those who are bound, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He stops there. Why? Because vengeance is coming. The day of the Lord now has been split in two. And so here in Malachi, we see this day of the Lord. Where again and again he speaks of the day of the Lord, and the day of the Lord is replete with how destruction is coming to his people. They will be made stubble. They'll be set ablaze. There'll be neither root or branch left. And they'll be ashes under our feet. And then he goes on to say that Elijah is coming to bring this message, to begin when this day of the Lord is going to pass. But yet when Jesus does arrive, he doesn't bring this vengeance and this wrath. Rather, God displays his patience to us displays his graciousness to us and that he extends his day of the Lord. And so you often hear theologians speak of we're living in the times that are now and not yet, where the kingdom has arrived, God has given his judgment, God has given his salvation, yet 
the full metting out of his vengeance has yet to arrive. And so this is the graciousness of God because he could have had Jesus die on the cross, rise from the grave, and in it there, those who believe go to his favor and those who do not go. But we have been given a long, patient time to see the truth so that our friends and family may see the truth. So why do we then care so much about Malachi's revelation? Malachi seems to be setting the stage for John the Baptist, who is Elijah, and then the coming of God's covenant messenger, Jesus. But all this has happened. We know this story. We're about to go into the Christmas season. We're going to read this over and over again. And so, does this really mean anything to us? God has paid our sins. We are not beholden to Old Testament law. And yet, we have Malachi again and again and again going through how his people are to obey God's covenant, to obey God's law. So why do we care? I want to give three reasons why this book is important to us Christians today, 2,000 years after Christ. Number one is that I think Malachi teaches us that even still, even though we are no longer in the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Testament law, we still should be keepers of covenant. We saw that Christ on uh, his last supper with his, with his disciples inaugurated the new covenant. This new covenant which was spoken of by God in the Old Testament has come true. And so that doesn't mean that we are free to just do whatever we want but we are still beholden to keep God's covenant. How do we know this? Malachi himself says that God is immutable, which means God does not change. Verse 6 of chapter 3, For I, the Lord, do not change. And so if God doesn't change, why would his expectations of what his people do change? We're not to claim Christ as our Savior and then go about doing whatever it is we want. Notice how often the, the, the idea of covenant is mentioned in the book of Malachi. Seven times I counted the word covenant coming out in these four short chapters. There are also several allusions to covenant language. You talk about curses and blessings and things of the like. In verse 4 of our passage today in chapter 4, he says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. So he's referring here to the Mosaic covenant that they found at Sinai. He's telling these people to remember these, these rules, these statutes. And this he's attaching then to the next verse where he's sending Elijah in the new covenant. In verse 5 he says, behold, I will send you Elijah, who we know is John the Baptist preparing the way for Christ the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of, hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. So what is this turning the hearts of fathers to their children and hearts of, their children, hearts of children to their fathers? 
I think this turning back is not so much as a mere social construct, like children will now behave. Uh, but it's the idea, it's just, there, there's a lot of, when you, if you read many commentaries, there'll be, there's maybe a hundred different interpretations of this. But here's, here's how I see it. Based on how often Malachi brings up this idea of covenant, and he just says to remember the covenant of Moses, I think this is an idea of covenant relationship. So this process is one that will turn the hearts of the wicked back to the hearts of the fathers with whom God has entered into this covenant at Sinai. So this is covenantal thinking. God has entered into a covenant relationship with the fathers. And so we see a parallel of this, for instance, in Isaiah chapter 63, verse 16, where Israel, the time of the prophet, or Israel... Um, is being lamented over because their actual communication with Abraham and Jacob seems to be ha- have been broken. They are behaving in a bad way because they no longer care and desire the hearts of their fathers. And we see even this in Malachi itself. He compares the priesthood of his day with that of prior times in chapter 2, ver- verses 1 through 9. And he compares the offering of Judah and Jerusalem in the, in the days of old and in former years in, in chapter 3, verse 4. He presents generation uh, has, the present generation has uh, been mixed, has, excuse me, the present generation has, through mixed marriages, profaned the covenant entered into with their fathers in chapter 2, verse 10, with a verdict that they'll be cut off from the tents of Jacob in chapter 2, verse 12. So even in the New Covenant, we are to be obedient. John chapter 14, verse 15 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so it is important for us today as New Covenant, New New Testament Christians, to be obedient to God's commandments. Secondly, we see the long-suffering graciousness of God. We saw earlier that the day of the Lord was ushered in by Christ himself. But yet, the wrath of God has not come. The judgment of God is being restrained. And so, we are to take that opportunity that God has given us in graciousness and make sure that we have repented if we have not. We have time to plead with our friends and family to bring them into the kingdom. If God were to come today with his wrath and vengeance, it would be over. There would be no time left for our friends or family to come into the kingdom of God. But he has given us time. He's given us a long-suffering patience for us. And so, if you are here today who have not repented and put their faith in Christ, you have been given grace upon grace and patience and patience to now put that in there. Thirdly, and this might be a tough one to see, is that I think we are also invited to join in the cursing of God. Now when I say that, I don't mean that we are to take upon ourselves personal vengeance. Throughout Scripture, one of the hardest things that Christians have found 
is these verses throughout the Bible that seem to indicate a desire to see God's enemies destroyed in the worst way. And so what do we do with that as Christians? <laughs> right, we saw in verse 3 of chapter 4 that we will join in God's wrath and tread down the wicked to make them ashes under our feet. How are we supposed to reconcile that with the idea of turning the other cheek and loving your enemies? I think God has asked us to join in this cursing of people, this what we call impractation. But he's called us not to do it in an individual vengeance type of way. But rather, we are to do it in a way that understands the long-suffering of God and also has a concern for God's kingdom no longer being attacked. Think of if someone has kidnapped your child. As a Christian who is to love their enemy, turn the other cheek, do we just say, oh well, I guess take my other child? No. It is right and just and good for us as Christians to pray that that man be captured and justice brought upon him because we want the evil to stop. And so for us as well, we want the evil to stop. We want the attacks against God's kingdom to end. And so I think God has asked us to join in that cursing of people. And again, not as personal vengeance, but only within the framework of understanding God's graciousness and that his will be done and that his time frame will be done. And so there are many of us who have gotten to the point in our lives where all we can say is, Jesus come, Jesus. But I think there's a danger here in that your attitude for come, Jesus come is that of merely weariness about life. If that's the case, I do not think you're joining in the cursing of God in an appropriate way. Rather, what we should seek is that God's kingdom no longer has barriers, that God's justice is done in a way that is both gracious and loving and good. And so we can join in God's uh, cursing as we will when, when he comes and so we are to yearn for the great and awesome day of the Lord. This is a day that is coming for us, and we should desire it. We should look for it. We should plead and ask God for it, not so that those who have hurt us will die and suffer, but so that God's kingdom will come to its fullness, so that the great day of the Lord will finally fully come to its fruition, and those who are in the book of remembrance can enjoy God's kingdom forever and ever. So here we have the book of Malachi. It's ended de delineating two groups of people. Those who are the fearing of the Lord, who will be in his memorandum, who will tread on the ashes of those who do not fear God, and the, those who do not fear God, the sons of Jacob, who don't keep covenant, who don't obey God, who don't follow his ways. 
And so Book of Malachi ends very much like the book of Revelation, pointing to these things. And it points to the coming of Christ, who will be the impetus and the catalyst for that book of memorandum to be brought out so that we may forever enjoy his greatness. About to sing a song which says this, When on the day the great I am, the faithful and the true, the Lamb who was for sinners slain is making all things new. Behold, our God shall live with us and be our steadfast light, and we shall ever his people be. All glory be to Christ. So Elijah has come. The messenger of the new covenant has come. Let us thank God for it. Father, we thank you for today that you are a great king who has a book of records so we can be sure and secure that those of us who fear you, who have faith in your son, will be kept aside from the great day of destruction, from the day of wrath. And I pray that we rightly align with your will, showing graciousness and love when appropriate, but also yearning and pleading for that day when your kingdom will no longer be stopped, no longer be pushed back upon, but will go out indefinitely. We thank you for your word in Malachi, that he sets us to be reminded to keep his covenant, to keep his law, so that we aren't just people who say we believe and go out and do things other than, but we are doers of your word. We are keepers of your commandments. We thank you for all these things, we pray in your son Jesus' name.